All right, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Now, I know that we're in Romans chapter 8, and I know that we have a, a problem that we need to fix, and I don't have a good answer yet. Um, and even if I had a good answer, I don't necessarily want to spend, I don't, I don't want to take the time right now to work on it more. We've already worked on it some. We worked on it, a, uh, I did a, a, a broadcast where I tried to work on it a little bit. I'm going to probably be doing another special broadcast looking at how John Gill um, in his commentary tries to resolve the problem. I don't know if there's a good answer uh, to resolve the problem. Uh, it's the problem Sarah Danzler uh, brought up, and I'm glad she brought it up, but I don't have a good answer to it. So, um, And it really kind of comes down to what we're talking about in regards in Sunday school and the Niagara Creed. So are you making a contrast between a saved and a lost person? If you're making a contrast between a saved and a lost person, what happens when the saved person looks like a lot like the lost person? Then is it a contrast or not a contrast? Because, again, whatever contrast you think is found in Romans 8 between a saved and a lost person, I can go right over to 1 Corinthians 3 and show you an entire church that Paul refers to as babes in Christ that is doing every kind of sin you can imagine. And they wouldn't fit, they wouldn't fit the contrast. So I know we all want to believe that when you become a Christian, you know, we're, we're all so radically different, but the reality is we're not as different as we all pretend that we are, and, the rea- and, and that, that becomes a problem. So here's what I'm going to do this morning. Um, I'm, we're going to skip down a little bit in the text, and we're going to work on this part of the text, seeing how it relates to what came before to some level, but we're going to look at it, and it as its own subject in and of itself, and then We'll try to put everything else back together and clean it up at some point. But I thought this would be very important. So here's what I want you to, uh, I want you to write down two words. Suffering and the word glory. Suffering and glory. All right? Now, whether you know it or not, you have a theology on suffering and glory. Um, Whether you can articulate it, you have one. You express your theology on suffering and glory in a lot of ways, but there has not always been, I know this is going to come as a shock, there's not always agreement on this idea of suffering and glory. Let me try to illustrate, okay? Think of, um, think of suffering, saying this side of the church, think of this as suffering, this is the suffering side, okay, right? Suffering, and then way over here, think of this as the glory side, Okay, so when you think of suffering and glory, do you understand this? And it's the way I wrote it down in my, in my notes. Do you understand suffering and glory as being consecutive? In other words, one leads to the other. First suffering and consecutive, what follows it, what comes after it is glory. All right, do you understand it that way? The, within some Jewish writings... They believe that the suffering of the people of God in the present age would bring them glory in the age to come. So this is the consecutive idea. First comes the suffering. Then comes some experience and, re- and, and idea of glory. I have a feeling that there's a lot of that way of thinking probably, at, well, I don't know if you've ever spent any time trying to, to flesh out your theology on suffering and glory, um, 
you probably should since it really relates to your everyday life, but it's, it's pretty important. So everybody understand the consecutive view? Suffering, and then what, what follows it? Glory. Everybody understand that. There's another view. All right, so this side of the church, suffering. This side of the church, glory. Think of the pulpit as the next view. And this is what is called the, uh, in fact, the way I wrote it down in my notes, um, as the uh, intermingled view. Intermingled. That suffering and glory are intermingled with one another. And this is a view that is present within some elements of Christianity. Some Christianity holds a very consecutive kind of view. They, and we could argue which, now we got to figure out which one is biblical, but the consecutive view is kind of like suffering, 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 and then comes the glory. And then there's the view that no, suffering and glory are intermingled. They are in, intermingled. Okay? Um, and they're intermingled with one another. Now, what's the ultimate question? Which view is biblical? Which view is biblical? The consecutive or the intermingled? The consecutive or the intermingled? Right? That's, that's a very important question. Now, before we can even answer this question, but we're going to try to answer this question to someone. I'm going to present at least, I'm going to present a specific view here. Does anybody, anybody repeat anything? Somebody got it? Everybody good? Okay. All right. I want to make sure we have that down. So what's view number one? Consecutive view, which says... Suffering, then glory. What's the second view? Intermingled, which says they're, they're, they're together. They're intermingled. All right? Everybody understand that? Okay? All right. Now I've got to let all my podcast notifications go away. i got 26 new podcast notifications. Well, that's great. I can't listen to them right now. All right, here we go. No, actually, i got another 17. Okay, so stop popping up. All right, here we go. I'm going to have you, so you wrote the words suffering and glory, right? Now, I want you to write another word down, all right? I'll spell it out for you. You ready? I-N-C-L-U-S-I-O. There you go. Good job back there, Levi. I-N-C-L-U-S-I-O. Inclusio. Anybody know what that is? Somebody better know. Okay, hang on, I'm opening up to make sure if anyone trying to chat with us. Okay, all right. Um, if you don't know, inclusio is a literary device. It's a literary device. Does anybody know how, what this literary device does? All right, all right I'm going to give you a basic understanding of this literary device. You're like, what does this literary device have to do with suffering and glory? It has everything to do, because we need to understand this literary device, because it appears Paul is using this literary device in Romans chapter 8. All right? And understanding the literary device being used is very important, because that helps you understand how to interpret what is being said. Correct? All right, here we go. In biblical studies, inclusio is a literary device... Based on concentric principle, also known as bracketing or an envelope structure. Just understand it as, uh, inclusio is a literary device, and uh, understand it as bracketing or an envelope structure. Bracketing or an envelope structure. Does everybody know what that means? 
The bracketing, you may get an idea. The envelope, you may not. Well, envelope, you probably kind of know. What do you think this is saying? All right, something inside of something else. Okay, that, that's very well said. Okay, that's, that's, that's better than it is in my notes. Okay, all right. Uh, so the idea is this consists of creating a frame by placing similar material at the beginning and the end of a section. Although whether this material should, should consist of a word or phrase or whether greater amounts of text also qualify, and of what length the frame section should be are matters of some debate. Inclusio was found in various sources, both older and new. The purpose of Inclusio may be structural to alert the reader to a particular important theme, or it may serve to show how the material within the Inclusio relates to the Inclusio itself. All right, does everybody basically understand that? Right? So what do you have to, how do you determine if an occlusio is present? Let me, let me, let me give, throw it out there. How, what would you look for? What would be your clue? Uh-oh, occlusio, occlusio, we got an occlusio, we've discovered an occlusio. What, 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 what's your clue? First, you have to have a section of scripture. Everybody got that? You have to have a section of scripture. How long that section or short that section is may be a matter of debate, but you have to have a section. What do you have to have at the beginning of the section and the end of the section? The same idea, same phrase, same theme. Right? Now, understanding that this is inclusio, then you've got to figure out, okay, so if that, if the middle part brackets, if the middle, if the middle part is bracketed by these two ideas, then the interpretation of that middle part has to be interpreted in light of what? What's bracketing it? Or the inclusio? Does that understand? This is a, this is a basic, con- basic concept in biblical studies. You've, you, it, I would be, it would be interesting if I, I, I wanted, if I had a printer, what I was going to do is write out like, a, give you like about 10 passages of scripture, hand them out and see which one could find an inclusio and which one couldn't. All right? But you should already be doing this. If you're a Bible reader, you should already be looking for inclusios. Well, wait. Wait, that's interesting. That section is bracketed by the same idea. Hmm, what does that tell me? That the middle part needs to be interpreted in light of what's bracketed. Does that make sense? Well, we come to a section where this seems to be occurring. Now, I will always say seems because you can probably guess if it's in the Bible... There's always disagreements. Or some will say, who cares? Right? I always love that great mentality. I don't care. Okay, well, you don't care, but, but then that probably means you probably should just give up reading the Bible because you don't care to understand it. But if you care to understand it, we've got to look for these kinds of things. All right, so everybody ready? All right, let's see if we can locate it. Romans chapter 8. Everybody ready? Romans chapter 8. We're going to go to verse, oh, where we want to go. We'll go to verse, uh, we're going to go to verse 17, all right? We'll go to verse 17 and 18. I think this is where we'll, we'll at least start picking up the beginning of the inclusio. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we may, that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed. All right. Now, what two phrases show up in both verses? 
Suffering and glory. Hey, everybody got that? See how, how great that was? Okay, now jump down to verse 29 and 30. All right. Verse 29, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, he also, he also called. And whom he called, he also justified. And whom he justified, he also glorified. All right. Everybody see that? Okay. Now, there's the glorification showing back up. Yes? Now, we don't have the suffering repeated, but we have the glorification appearing. So, we have a section in the middle, that's going to have something to do with two concepts, probably, most likely. What two concepts? Suffering and glory, and they need to be understood about these two concepts. Now, what we're going to do is, in these concepts, do we find a, what? Consecutive view? Or an intermingled view? Right? Does that make sense? But clearly, the two concepts, uh, clearly, the glory is repeated. Everybody see that? Now, we could talk about the suffering part. The suffering part, it can be talked about if, if you continue down. You're going to see some of the idea of the suffering part because he's going to talk about things like tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. For, the, for, the, for thy sake, we are killed all the day long. We're counted as sheep for the slaughter. More than... Uh, this idea of suffering is going to show up later on anyway, but it, it may be a little bit outside of the inclusio, but it's still related to it. Does that make sense? All right, so we see glory at least repeated at the beginning, and we see it re- repeated at the end. Can we all at least agree with that? All right, so this gives us like a literary clue how what is going on here. How do we figure this out? So we're going to do a little work on this and see what we can figure out. Does that sound good? All right. According to one line of reasoning, suffering and glory are no longer consecutive. In other words, they don't lead one to the other. But rather, they are intermingled with the other. And the reason this changed, according to one view, is because of the death and resurrection of Christ. The glory of the age to come has broken into the age of suffering. That because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, glory has broken into the age of suffering, and now the two are intermingled. Now, I don't need to do a lot to prove to you that suffering exists. I think everyone knows that, right? Do I need to spend a lot of time going, hey, let's spend this Sunday to prove to you suffering exists. I think that's one thing that would be pretty redundant and everybody like, I think I get it, right? Because I've suffered. I know people are suffering. I watch the news. I read the news. There's suffering in the world. We can all agree. So how has glory, in a sense, broken in to the midst of suffering? Now, this may be making an argument that suffering was the dominant age before the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. We, we can make an argument for or against that later, but let's go with this idea. Everybody, thinking caps on? All right. The two, suffering and glory, are intertwined in the Christian life. They're saying the two are in, intertwined and they're co- basically intermingled, commingled together. All right. God's glory, are you ready, 
is already the possession of the believer even in the age of suffering. They say the glory, there's an aspect of glory that's already in our possession in this age of suffering, because there's no question that we are suffering, that their suffering occurs. There's no question about it. But there is a glory present. So we need to establish that to some level. Now go back to the beginning of the inclusio. Go back to the beginning of the inclusio. All right? Now, look at the verses kind of leading up to where the inclusio begins. What has Paul been talking about leading into here? Remember what our big discussion was when we came into Romans 8? That what do we now have? The Holy Spirit. What do we indwell with? Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is inside of us. God indwells us. Would you not say that's connected with glory? What do we talk about? What filled the temple? God's glory. Well, if God's indwelling you, what's indwelling you? God's glory. That's connected with it, right? Would you agree that that's what the previous sections dealt with? I think we can agree with that. Now, go right to where the inclusio begins. What is he referring to? Okay, go back to Romans 8, right where it starts. Go back to verse uh, 15. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of Adoption, where we cry, Abba, Father. So what do we have? We've been adopted, and we can now refer to God as Father. Is that not an, an aspect of glory? I think we should all say amen. Right? Right. What's the next uh, thing that he refers to? The Spirit itself bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if we are children, now look at what happens here. What are we? Heirs of God and joint heirs of with Christ, if so that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. Now that does refer to a future glory, but what am I right now? I'm a joint heir with Christ. I'm an, I'm an heir of God. What does that mean to be an heir of God? What does that mean to be a joint heir with Christ? What does that mean? What does it mean to be an heir? Yeah, the, you're going to inherit. So if I'm going to inherit from God with Christ, then what, do I, what does that mean for me? That I have an inheritance of what? Everything, because everything belongs to God. That's what I am right now. Now, am I suffering? Yes, but in the midst of the suffering, what am I? An heir, a child of God. Is that not glory? I'm, I'm indwelt with God. I'm, an, I'm a child of God where I can cry, Abba, Father, and I'm an heir, joint heir with Christ. Everybody see that? Next. For I reckon, uh, let's see, uh, verse uh, 18, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compare, compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So let's make sure we understand this. This is very important. There are certain things that I have right now but I also have the hope and future of a future glory. So in other words, there's a present glory, but there's also a future glory, even though what else is currently occurring? Suffering. They're making an argument this is intermingled. Go to Ephesians 1. I think this is played out even more in Ephesians. 
Go to Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, 3. Everybody there? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with what? All spiritual blessings. Where? And heavenly places in Christ. So how many spiritual blessings do you currently in possession of? All. Would that not be a sense of glory? I would think so. Ephesians 2, 6. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. How, where, how are we sitting there? When are we sitting there? Presently. Presently, I'm sitting with Christ in heavenly places. That is a position of what? Glory. Now, when do I experience that? Well, in some sense, it's right now. It's, it's a reality right now. If you go through all of Ephesians 1, it talks about all the things Christ has done for us. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. All, when do we have all of those things? Now. So there is a sense that we have glory. We are experiencing glory now. But what is another aspect? But there is suffering now. All right. Does that, does that make sense? Yes? Okay. So... Um, Think of it this way. The divine glory that we have, we're experiencing now, is presently invisible in many aspects, right? Residing, in a sense, in us or residing in the, in the truth of our position, all right? Only the return of Christ will it be revealed publicly in the believer's resurrected body. So in other words, there is a sense where that glory is presently it's present, it's real, it's not, not any less real, it's just not what? Visible. It's not visible, right? You can't, you just look at a Christian standing there, you don't see some of that glory. You don't see God inside of them, right? You can't see that, right? You can't see that they're seated with Christ in heavenly places. You can't see that. You can't see that their name is written in the Lamb's book of life, that their sins have been forgiven, that they have been redeemed, that they're covered in the blood of Christ. All of those things are invisible, but are those things any less real? No. What can you see? You can see the suffering. And that's, and, and, but when the glory of the future is revealed, then you will know it because then they'll have a glorified body in a place where no more pain, no more suffering, and no more death. You see, in a sense, how they're making an argument that the two are intermingled. And I think this is an important, I think this is an important concept for us to understand. Now, oh, I want to, I want to just jump down here, but let's, let's look at this, okay? Go back to Romans chapter 8. If you're not there, go back to Romans chapter 8. We could spend more time in Ephesians, but that's okay. Go to Romans chapter 8. Now, I want you to look at this, uh, I want you to look at this uh, section here, okay? Now, I've kind of tried to, I've tried to kind of build out the inclusio, right? I've given you the brackets, right? So, let's bracket it this way, okay? Do it, uh, think of it this way. Let's try to outline this section. Number one, just write down suffering and glory, Romans 8, 17 through 18. Suffering and glory, Romans chapter 8, 17 through 18. Clearly both are present there. There's no debate there. Agreed? There's no debate there. All right? And then, uh, okay, so there, there we have it. Then what I want you to do is number two, Romans 8, 19 
how far do we want to go down here? 19 to 27. 19 through 27. Right? And I want you to call this three groanings. Groanings. To groan. Right? Look through 19 to 27 and see if you can identify or find the groanings that are outlined in this section. 19 through 27. I'm going to, I'm going to, I know. Okay, very good. All right. What verse is that? Okay, verse 19. Okay, that's the groaning of creation. Everybody see that in verse 19? I'll read it for you if you don't see it. Romans 8, 19. Let me read this for you. Romans 8, 19. For the, um, okay. For, uh, wait, you said 19? It's verse 22, is it not? Yeah, for we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now, right? Yeah, now it's yeah. The concept starts in nineteen, but verse twenty-two is where the groaning occurs. I just want you to see the uh, groaning currently. Okay, so creation groans. Everybody see that? Creation groans. All right. Where's the second possible groaning here? Okay, verse twenty-three, and not only they. What? Who's the they? And not only they, creation, but ourselves also, right? We also what? Groan. In fact, look, we groan within ourselves. So there's the groaning within ourselves. So creation groans, we groan. And what's the third? The spirit groans where? Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for we, uh, as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. The Spirit is inside of us, in a sense, groaning with us, groaning almost in a sense for us, taking our groanings and doing what with them? Making intercession on our behalf. So please note, just keep, remember the inclusio deals with what two concepts? And glory. We've got all the groaning going on. That gets the what? The suffering. But then what in the midst of all of that, what do you see? The spirit involved. That's glory. That's glory to have God inside of you when you're so overwhelmed with an emotion that you cannot express that you know, look, you can hop on the phone and say, hey, please pray for me. But there's someone already praying for you that will pray for you far better than probably the people you're texting. the Holy Spirit who, can, who, who intercedes on how frequently? Constantly. That's far better than hoping that the person I just texted is going to pray for me. Far better. Far, absolutely 100% guaranteed that the Spirit's not going to be like, okay, I started to pray for you and I fell asleep. Okay, that, you're not, you're not, you don't have to deal with that problem, right? And you, trust me, you've probably decided to pray for someone and fell asleep. You probably have done that, correct? Yes? Okay. Okay, do I? Uh, only me. Okay, no, no, that wouldn't be me. Okay, all right, so you, so you get the idea? You see how the two come together? Yes? Okay, so what do we have? What, what's our outline? That's what's number one? Sufferings and groanings. What verse is that? Eight, uh, verses 18 and 19. Everybody see that? Or 17 and 18, thank you. All right, um, I was looking at the wrong chapter. Romans 8, 17 through 18. Then number two, we have three groanings. That goes from chapter, 19, uh, chapter 8, verses 19 to 27. What are those three groanings? Verse 
creation, believers or ourselves, and the spirit, in a sense, groans with us. All right, everybody got that? Then, verses 28 to 30, look at verse 28 to 30, look here. For we know all things work together uh, for them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate, to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, he also called, whom he called, he also justified, whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, that, so, the, so write down suffering and glory, verses uh, 28 to 30. Verses 28 to 30. Now, I know what you're saying. Where's the suffering? If you don't see the suffering there, I don't know what to tell you because it's there. But I'll point it out in a minute, okay? So, where does that, what does the inclusio begin with? Romans 8, 17 and 18, suffering and glory. Then what do you have? Three groanings. That goes from chapter 8, verses 19 to 27, correct? Then third, you have the end of the bracket, Right? You close the envelope and you have suffering and glory that goes from verse 28 to 30. Does anyone see the suffering in verses 28 to 30? If you can identify the suffering here, you get $5,000 and someone else will have to pay you. Okay? Okay? Oh, it's there. You've got to look. Oh, come on. It's in the verse that everyone quotes. All things work together. There's the suffering. For what purpose? Glory. There we go. God uses the suffering for whose glory? Not you. His glory. Which changes the whole concept, which changes everything, right? Okay, so let me go back to... um, Oh, how far do we want to get here? All right. Okay. So, listen to this. This is how I have it in my notes. Romans 8, 28 through 30 presents the same pattern. Divine glory is the present possession of the believer, but it coexists with suffering. The former aspect is clearly outlined in Romans 8, 29 through 30, which so showcases a dazzling display of theological terms to describe the present aspect of the Christian salvation. What are some of those terms? Look in Romans uh, 20, 29 and 30. For new. Okay. For new. Predestined. Uh, do we have a call there somewhere? Called. Justified. Glorified. Everybody see those terms? How many of those deal with the present? Foreknew, right? If you're alive, he foreknew, correct? Predestined, right? If you're alive, if you're, alive you're, you're obviously, I mean, all, some of those terms deal with the, the past, but they have an implication to the present. Called. Exactly. All of them have some concept of the present. If you were alive, right? If you're currently on this earth and you're a Christian, these would apply to you. So therefore, we have some of the present case of glory, but what we have the future fulfillment promised and the glorified part. Yes? Those he foreknew, he predestines. Those he predestines, he does what? He calls. Those he calls, he justifies. And those he justifies... It glorifies. Please note that's all the work of God. We don't get involved in any of that. Did you do the foreknowing? Obviously you did not. Did you do the predestinating? 
Obviously did not. Did you do the calling? Obviously did not. And you say, well, I answered. The only way you answered is because he gave you the faith to answer. Okay? That goes to Ephesians 2. And he did the calling, right? He does everything. And he does the justify. All of that's the glory you currently, that's the glory you're currently experiencing. Now, the problem is, we don't view it that way. What we have a tendency to do is we see the reality of the suffering and we are hoping for the reality of the future glory with overlooking the glory we're currently experiencing. We have a glory now which we don't acknowledge and we don't. Now, you may say you acknowledge it. You acknowledge it on paper, maybe, right? But in practice, what do you do? You'll see Christians say it all the time. Oh, I cannot wait until I have a glorified body and I'm in heaven and, and, and glorify. I cannot wait till glorification. Well, what about the glory you are experiencing right now? Yes? And though it greatly, if we understand this concept, I think it greatly changes how we view the suffering. Let me, let me continue with, with, in some of the notes I have here, all right? Yeah. Suffering is a reality, yes? Okay. Obviously we do, right? I mean, do you have all spiritual blessings? Yes. Are you seated with Christ in heavenly places? Yes. Have you been, uh, have you been redeemed? Yes. Have your sins have been forgiven? Yes. Have you been, uh, has God foreknown you? Yes. Have you been predestined? Yes. Have you been called? Yes. Have you been justified? Yes. All of these things, all, I mean, we can go on and on and on and on with all the things God has done. We overlook that current glory. Think of it this way. We allow this present suffering, we allow this present suffering to blind us of the present glory. So then we overlook the present glory to look for a future glory, which I'm sorry, may not be coming tomorrow. May not be coming next week. It may come four years after suffering with cancer. Does that make sense? We need to grasp the, the reality of the present, the present glory. Right? We got to re- look. Are you going to stop struggling with sin today? Everybody wants to be in heaven where the struggling with sin will cease. But there is a present glory right now in the midst of struggling with sin. Yes? Keep that in mind, because remember that a lot of people see Romans 8 as the solution to the sin problem, right? But there, this, this is in part of that broader discussion. Now, listen carefully here. All right? So, um, the, so in the present, we have uh, foreknew, predestined, called, justified, all of that. It is not accident, it's not accidental that glory... Romans 8.30 is the term used to conclude that list, for it returns the reader to the thought that is, in, that is basically throughout the entire paragraph. He ends that list of justified, with glorified, which is how he started the entire inclusio, right? It's, it's not an accident that he ended with that. Because that's, the, that's bringing the whole paragraph in, to, in order to try to get you the idea of what's, what's being described here. The latter aspect, suffering, 
is, and, and this is the way one commentary wrote it, it is the conceptual antecedent of the words, and all things God works for the good of those who have been called according to his purpose. In context, the all things are the afflictions that God causes to conform the believer to the image and glory of Christ. That everyone hear that and understand that. Suffering is the conceptual antecedent of the words and all things God works for the good of those who have been called according to his purpose. In context, all things are the afflictions that God uses to conform believers to the image and glory of Christ. Everybody got that? Let's go through. I'll see how much time. Oh, we're at 12.01. Okay. I want to go through these now because we can go through the groanings. We can go through the groanings. We can go through all... We, well, we, there's a lot of things we could do here to really pull this together, but I don't, want to, I, don't want to, I don't want to start this because we know where I'm going to be able to finish this. So let's do this. Go to, go to Romans chapter 8. Okay. Go to um, verse 28. And we know that all things, all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. The all things relate to the afflictions that are outlined, kind of described in Romans 8, 17 and following, which talks about the groanings, right? Remember those groanings? All of that groaning, all of that suffering, and I'm gonna, and I'm gonna say it, state it differently. The suffering are the things God uses not, and we always, tra- we always interpret this for our good, but it's our good in, the, in, in what sense? That he uses all things to bring about glory to himself. And in the midst of the all things, what, how, is he, how is he using some of these things? Or what is he doing in the midst of all of these things to bring glory? Well, go back to those groanings. What shows up in the midst of the groanings? The Spirit, right? Which is where? In us. So the Spirit is in us. The, the suffering, the all things is occurring and the Spirit is utilizing that, God is utilizing that to bring about glory for Him and for His purpose. We always interpret this as, for God, you know, that basically all things work together for good, for those who love, so all things work together, just all things work together for good. Hey, this really bad thing, it's going to turn out good. And how everybody interprets that? No, he's taking the suffering to bring about glory. That's the whole inclusio, right? Suffering and glory, suffering and glory. The suffering is connected to what? Glory. How are they? They're not. It's almost like we have this really weird mindset. Okay, I'm a Christian and I got to suffer now. Suffer now. Glory's coming later. It's almost like, you know, that famous country song, you gotta go through hell to get to heaven. Okay? 
All right, well, that's some bad theology, okay? All right, uh, and it's a bad country song, okay, to add to it. Okay, we want, but you get the idea, right? Okay, that's the way some people think. And, we, and you catch yourself thinking that way. The reality is what? Suffering and glory are intermingled, and why? Everybody get this right, or we'll never leave. The suffering is there for what purpose? To bring glory to God. In the midst of the suffering. The glory has to be in the midst of the suffering for the suffering to ultimately work out for God's glory. Because what is required? The spirit, it has to be required. In In fact, you could make an argument that the only, well, in fact, the text really seems to imply this. All things work together for them who Love God and are called according to his purpose, and those who love God would be those who are indwelt with the Spirit. Without the indwelling of the Spirit, all things cannot work together for good because the Spirit has to be there in the midst of the groaning to make groanings on our behalf, to be interceding. And what is he interceding? It doesn't appear that he would be interceding for your suffering to cease. It seems like he would be interceding for what purpose? For it to bring glory. So what should be your prayer? That God would be glorified. Not not for the removal of the suffering, but for the glory of God to arise from the suffering. The greater glory the suffering can bring from a Christian worldview, the more you welcome the suffering. You see why the inclusio here is so important? All right, does that make sense? Yes, no? Did you have a, you have a question? Okay. Okay. Yeah, uh, that, that's good. Uh, yeah, go ahead. I'll, I'll. Right, and if you take all of those concepts in Romans 5, what, what, you, what two concepts show up that's similar to Romans 8? Glory and suffering. The glory is all the things that we have. If I'm in Christ, I no longer what? Have what? I have, well, go through all the things listed. I have peace with God. Look, you can look at Romans 5 if you need to look at it really quick. All the things that Seth just uh, listed. Romans 5. I don't want to... to we, we, since we're justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Christ, for whom we have access by faith into the grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. You see, and not only so, but we glory what? In tribulations. In tribulations. There's the tribulations. But we glory in the tribulation. The glory and the suffering are, co- are commingled together. Do you see the idea? You see, they're not consecutive one after the other. They're at present at the same time. This is a radical approach, but I want you to see this. So this is interesting. 
Paul, after dealing with this idea of sin, right? And how do we overcome this sin? He seems to point to the Spirit. What's interesting is then he then goes into what would appear to be a, a discussion about suffering. Well, what, how does that relate to the, to the problem, to the other? I will argue that suffering sometimes leads to what? Sometimes suffering leads to sin, which is the broader discussion in the previous section, correct? Right? But the Spirit in us, Romans 8, remember the groanings? Spirit's inside of me. Remember early part of Romans 8? Where's the Spirit? Inside of me. What's the Spirit inside of me? How does that relate to the struggle with sin? We've talked about that. Well, now it's how does the Spirit deal with me in the midst of suffering? It's inside of me to take that groaning to pray and to intercede that glory will become from it. Well, one of the dangers we have as Christians is when we suffer, sometimes we have a sinful response and not a God-honoring response. He wants you to realize that the Spirit in you should change your perception of suffering. That suffering is happening in the midst of glory and God is dwelling in you in the midst of that suffering for what purpose? To glorify himself. So therefore, instead of complaining or not wanting the, wanting the suffering to stop, you want the suffering to continue how long? Whatever is required for God to be glorified, which removes whom from the whole equation? You're just there for what purpose? That's a radically different approach because how do we flip this entire section? God is there for you. To work out things good for whom? You. That just threw the whole section upside down, did it not? Right? Do you see, so you see why that inclusio is so important? Right? So, I'm going to argue that the two are intermingled. And that intermingling of suffering and glory should change your entire perception of it, but it's directly related to the spirit inside of you. Does that make sense? All right. That's the overview. Now, well, next time we'll kind of take it apart a little bit more. Some of it will be repetitive, but we'll break it down. And we still have to back up and get to that problem that Sarah Danzler created for everyone. In fact, uh, someone emailed and uh, told me to tell Sarah Danzler is not allowed to ask any more theological questions in this church. Okay. Uh, because uh, other people listening going, wait, wait, what? Wait. She just caused all kind of confusions. Uh, because in verse Romans 8, verse 5, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. And remember, many commentaries draw a correlation between what two concepts? In the flesh and after the flesh. And she, she's like, Our, how do we draw this correlation? And what's the difference? And should there be a difference? Yeah, and which is which is very good that she caught that, because if in the spirit after the spirit are two different things, then in the flesh after the flesh. But if in the spirit and after the spirit are the same thing, then why wouldn't in the flesh and after the flesh be the same thing? Well, if in the flesh and after the flesh are the same things, then basically this is a if you're in the flesh or after the flesh, you're what? You're lost, and the only way to be saved is to be in the spirit and after the spirit, which would be a, a seem to go completely against Paul's whole discussion of Romans 7, where he says that he's conflicted that with the body, 
He's basically serving the flesh, after the flesh, in the flesh, with the mind, the Spirit of God. So that's why some people take Romans 8 to interpret Romans 7, that Paul was lost. Because he can't, he couldn't be in the flesh and after the flesh, because that means he's lost. So he has to be lost. And Romans 8 is the solution. And now that I'm in the Spirit, I'm after the Spirit, and I don't do the things of the flesh, and I'm not after the flesh, which creates all kinds of major problems. Okay, Which really causes problems when you go to Corinthians, and Paul tells those fleshly, carnal, in fact, he says they're carnal, that they're, that they're babies in Christ. So I don't understand. So there's no easy solution. There's no easy solution. Now, I, ever, I know uh, I can get 50 emails going, no, the solution is simple. If fleshly people are not saved, I'm like, well, congratulations. Please send me the video of your non-fleshly life. In fact, the way you're speaking to me in the email seems to indicate you have a problem with the flesh. Okay, but that, that's a, neither here nor there. All right. Everybody got that? Any questions about this suffering glory concept? Does everybody understand it? All right, think so? And pass a test on it? All right. Does, it, does that help you with the famous passage, Romans 8, 28? Okay, you see why an inclusio is important to understand? Literary devices, literary devices. Remember, what did Augustine, when we were working through the Augustine book, what did he teach us? How do we understand the Bible? By how we learn to read other books, right? And other books use what kind of devices? And why are we shocked that the Bible do the same thing? So you don't want to know literary devices. You don't want to understand the Bible. That's simple. You don't, have, don't know how to interpret other books and other forms of storytelling, then you're not going to be able to interpret the Bible. And it is a shocker that that's the way it works. It's not. It's written, it's written revelation. It's going to be interpreted through basic rules of interpreting written words. So I think that makes sense. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Lord, this concept of suffering and glory is such an important concept. It has everything to do with the way we're going to live life the second we walk out this door. Help us understand how these are intermingled. Help us understand how you work all things, all suffering, all affliction out for the good of your glory. We would prefer you work all things out for our good, for what we want, but we don't get to make the rules. So help us understand this. Apply this and live according to it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...